Job chapter 3. Let's read this, this difficult chapter together, and then, and by God's grace, we will go through it. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said a boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered into any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins, with rulers who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave driver shout. The small and the great are there, and the slave is freed from his master. Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for a hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing comes to me instead of food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. In the prologue of the book of Job, the first two chapters, we are introduced to a series of characters and several situations that bind them together. First, we are told of Job, a man of integrity, and then God, the creator who delights in his creations, and yet he allows them to suffer. And then Satan, the self-centered cynic, uh, the, the accuser who questions Job's integrity and really questions God's delight in him. God allows Satan to attack him. And in the first series of attacks, Job loses everything, his possessions, his ten children. And he responds, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And then Job's health is taken away from him in the second series of attacks. As I mentioned when we went through this in chapter 2, we don't know what type of physical afflictions Job suffered. I am convinced that it wasn't one particular set of problems that we could say he had leprosy or he had this disease or that disease, but rather a a collection, a combination of various diseases and physical ailments. His wife is then introduced, and she suggests 
that he curse God and die. And he responds, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And then we come on the participants of the major part of this book, his three friends, who will, for the next number of chapters, over 30 chapters, criticize and correct and scold Job for his words. As I mentioned, like Job, they are not Jews, they're not Hebrews, they're not Israelites. Uh, They do not belong to the covenant people of God, but they do worship God. They believe in him, that he is the creator, he is the judge, he is righteous in all that he does. And because of this belief, they will scold Job for what he says. These three men are Eliphaz the Temanite, we will see the Lord willing next week, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Mammothite. Last week we spoke about the nature of friendship in the ancient world, and the covenant bond. I don't want to repeat myself, except to say that these men were more than just pals or buddies in the modern sense of friendship. They were covenant friends. They had agreed to meet together and then to go to comfort Job. But when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. And they burst out in weeping. They tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat with him for seven days and seven nights. We looked at presence and silence, the ministry of presence and the sacrament of silence. But finally the silence is broken today here in chapter 3. After seven days and seven nights of numbed shock, Job himself breaks the silence. Job is not an animal. He is a human being. He has thoughts. He has emotions. And so he speaks what we find in chapter 3. But nothing in chapters 1 and 2 prepare us for what we read here in chapter 3. A primal scream, if you wish, of anguish from this man, Job, this man of integrity. Out of the depths of his suffering, Job cries out in anguish with words that border on blasphemy. He spits out his bitterness, he shouts his doubts, and he sobs his wish for death. He wants to die. And and who can know what Job had been thinking over the past not only seven days, but the weeks and the months? Because we don't know how long it was between the time of the loss of his children and then the time of the loss of his health. And then the time when his friends come, because they lived a great distance. They didn't have cell phones. It took days for the message to get for them and then for them to agree to covenant to meet together and then they come and they meet Job one from as far away as modern day Iraq so for days weeks perhaps even months Job has been sitting there and thinking then his friends come and perhaps he thought they might have a word of comfort for him They might share his despair, but for seven days and seven nights, they say nothing. We talked last week that this could be a good thing, but and and I do think there are times when it's better to be quiet than to say something. But I think that Job gets a little edgy. He's wondering why these friends haven't said anything. It's been suggested that they're merely waiting for him to die. Because the acts of sorrow, the tearing of the robe, the sprinkling of dust on the head, That's what you do when someone dies. Maybe they think, okay, we'll just wait till he dies. And Job erupts in anger 
and in anguish. I think both the form and the language of this chapter are difficult for modern readers. I think the point is clear enough. Uh, Job's pain is so impossible, it is so intolerable, that he cries out against his very existence. He wishes that he did not exist. I think it's important for us as we come to this chapter to remember that Satan predicted to God that if you take away everything he has, he will curse you to your face. That didn't happen. Okay, if you touch his health, take away his health, he will curse you to your your face. That doesn't happen. But Job does curse, and he curses the day that he was born. We don't hear people today cursing the day they were born, but we do hear people, or I remember hearing people saying, I wish I'd never been born. Or, I didn't ask to be born. Sort of in the same vein. I think we need to somehow put ourselves in the position of Job's friends. I think they were not saddened at what Job said here in chapter 3. They were shocked. They were horrified at what he said. I, I think for us, we need to sort of get into what he said to really appreciate the depth uh, of, of what he was really saying. Job is basically saying things that once you say them, they can't be taken back. We live in a time when people think that words really don't hurt. You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, that type of stuff. No, words have tremendous power. And I think Job's friends will respond, beginning in chapter 4, they are deeply offended at what Job has said. Because what he has said to their ears is quite horrifying. Just some background before we get into chapter 3. Job's friends will respond to this, but this isn't sort of Job saying, okay, let's talk. I want to dialogue with you. That's not what's happening here. Job is just screaming. He can't take it anymore. His friends will then respond, and, and then Job will enter into them with dialogue. But this is not the first part of the dialogue. This is a man who is in tremendous pain. The chapter may be seen as a curse slash lament. That is, in the first part of it, he curses the day he was born. And in the second half, he laments the fact that he was, in fact, born. Some writers divide this into three parts. uh, But I I think a good case could be made for the fact that it's actually two parts. Uh, In verses 3 through 13, the key word is the word may. It appears 14 times, Uh, it is the curse of May. May, the day I was born, be cursed. And then in the second half, we have the lament of why. Why was I born? Why why didn't I die at birth? Why have I been made to suffer all of these things? Each section, verse 13 and then verse 26, they are the ending of the sections, they both deal with the issue of rest. In verse 13, he says, then I would have had rest. In verse 26, he says, I have no rest. Each section, if you divide it up into two, 26 lines each. So they they are parallel. In the first, he curses the day he was born. In the second, he wonders why he was born at all and why he has been made to suffer. First of all, the curse in verses 3 through 13. Job does not curse God as Satan predicted. He does not curse himself. He doesn't curse anyone else. He does curse the day of his birth 
and the night of his conception. And the two together, his conception and his birth, make up, I think, his origins. But more than that, we have day and night, that which makes up what we call a 24-hour day. Job is not merely saying, however, I wish I'd never been born. In these verses, he says, I wish that the day of my birth would be removed from the calendar, that it would be blotted out from memory. Because as long as his birth, the day of his birth, his birthday is in the, on the calendar, every time the earth goes around the sun and it comes back to that day, it is a reminder of his very existence and of his pain that he is going through. Job says it would be better if God had never created that day. Because if God had not created that day, then Job would have never existed. The only way that you can remove a day from the calendar, in the ancient world at least, you know, today you can just sort of take it out of the calendar, would be to utter a curse. And it's been called a counter-cosmic incantation. It is a spell that basically says, you see all of these days of day and night, day and night, day and night. There's order. There's structure. I want that day to be taken out and chaos and darkness to be put in its place. I mentioned when we began the series on Job, the first sermon was on the wisdom books, that one of the foundational doctrines to understanding the book of Job, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, is that God created the world. If you do not accept that God created the world, these three books make no sense whatsoever. They're very difficult anyway, but if you do not believe in God as a creator, then they make no sense. Because in Proverbs, there is an assumption that there is cause and effect. There is order in the universe. And so Solomon and the other men who wrote the Proverbs, they say, if you do this, then this is what will happen. If you don't do this, then you will not get this result. Because God created the world. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is structure, cause and effect in the world. Ecclesiastes says, I, I, I beg to differ with that. God created the world, but I have no idea what's going on. Everything under the sun, it's vanity, it's useless. In the book of Job, the order that God has put in the world is hidden from Job. But in all three books, God is the creator. That's important because when we look at verses 3 through 13, this curse, this counter-cosmic incantation, it actually duplicates in a negative, in a dark way, the days of creation. It is Job, in a sense, uncreating the world, following the lines along which God created the world. And I think this is hard for us to understand. Because if I were to put myself in Job's place, if I were to do what Job did, and I would say, may February the 12th never exist. May there never again, may there, that there would have never been a February 12th, just go from 11 to 13. Our focus would be more on the human calendar. We have months, we have days, we number them. Uh, you know, 2, 12, the second month, 12th day. And I think our focus would not be so much on the fact that God created that specific day. 
That's how Job is thinking, however. That God created that very specific day on which he was born, and he wants to uncreate that day. Let me see if I can show this to you. On the first day of creation, God said, let there be light. Well, if you look at verse number four here in chapter three, and I'll I'll point it out as we go along. That day, may it turn to darkness. God said, let there be light. And Job said, let there be darkness. He is going to uncreate the day that God created. On the second day, we are told that God made an expanse and he separated the water from the water. Uh, Well, if you look, uh, it speaks of God being personally involved. Look at verse 4, the second part. May God above not care about it. In other words, may God not be involved at all. On the second day, God is not only saying, let there be light, but God is personally involved in separating. And on the second day of uncreation for Job, Job is saying, I don't want God to be involved in this whatsoever. It's only the third day of creation that Job doesn't involve in his speech. I'm not sure why, but he goes to day four. Day four of creation, we read, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. Well, if you look in verse number six, that night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. God created the stars, the planets to show us the seasons of the year. And Job says, no, let's uncreate that. Let's not have, let's have darkness. Let's have chaos on this day instead of having this day. Day five, we are told that God created the great creatures of the sea. And here in verse number eight, the second part of the verse, uh, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. Leviathan was considered a sea monster. We will see Leviathan again when we get toward the end of the book. God created the great sea monsters, the great creatures of the sea, and Job says, get rid of them. Uncreate them. Day six, let us make man in our image. Verse 11, why did I not perish at birth? I want to make man. Job, no. Why why was I even born? Let's unmake this person, Job. And then day seven, which is a day in which God rested from all the work of creating. Uh, Verse 13, for now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest. Job seeks to undo what God has done in the act of creating. And if Job's curse were effective, he would have ceased to exist. It would have been as though he had never been. Then it would have been impossible for him to suffer the the amazing and the unbelievable things, in fact, that he had suffered. But now we come to the second half of this chapter, the lament, the question of why. It actually begins in verse number 11, and that's why people tend to see this as having three sections and not two. But we find a series of questions. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? Why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? Then if you look at verse number 20, uh, here in chapter 3, 
Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? And why is it that people who want to die have to keep on living? Those who desire death because of the terrible condition of their lives, why don't they get to die? And then verse 23. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God is hedged in? Perhaps we need to stop and step back a minute and say, why is this even in the Bible? This curse and this lament. Why does Job say such horrible things? I think in this amazing chapter, we are taken inside Job's heart and are made to feel as much as we can his anguish. It might remind you of someone else crying out, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Job is in indescribable pain, and not merely physical pain, but emotional and spiritual and mental pain. In verse number 25, I think this, to me, is the key to this chapter. He says, What I have feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. What is it that Job has feared? Is it the loss of his possessions? Is it the loss of his children? I don't think it's that. Because when he lost his possessions and his children, he said, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. I don't think that Job feared his whole life. Oh no, one day somebody may take away my possessions. Someone may take away my children. I don't think that's what he feared. Is it his physical condition? No, because he tells his wife, should we receive only good things from God and not trouble? Is it the fact that his wife tells him to curse God and die? Is this what Job feared? I think what Job feared and what has turned his world upside down and inside out is that God is not who he says he is. That Job has been worshipping this God for much of his life, certainly through the days of the lives of his children. He has come to believe that God is good, that God is righteous, that God does what is right. And suddenly he is faced with the possibility that God is not who he says he is. And beyond that, God has been silent. God hasn't spoken up to say to Job, no, I'm still good. I'm still righteous. There is a reason for this. God is absent and God is silent. It might be okay for his friends to sit there in silence. Their silence can be a a source of comfort. But there is one silence that Job does not want, and that's silence from God. See, Job desperately wants to bring his faith and his experience together. And right now they're being torn apart viciously. What he has gone through and what he believes are not on the same page. 
they do not come together. He wants his faith to somehow make sense of what he's gone through. He cannot understand why this has happened and why God has allowed it to happen. God's, or Job's knowledge of God and his ignorance of what God does are now in conflict. You see, what we know of God's goodness and what we do not know about his purposes can come together like a train wreck. Because we know of God's goodness, but we don't know why God allows certain things to happen. It is an unbearable tension. Job knows that his life is in God's hands. He knows that God is a good God. But the experiences he has just gone through make it impossible for him to see in what sense God has his well-being in mind. I believe that God is good then why, am I, why have I lost everything? Well, that's fine. I, I don't need things. God is good, but I'm suffering physical difficulties. But that's okay, because after all, we're not here forever. Our lives do end. God is good, but he's silent. That's what Job fears. The possessions you can do without. To lose family members, one day we lose them anyway. Physical health, one day we will lose that as well. But to lose God, for Him to become silent, it is more than He can take. The God that Job is experiencing at this moment is much more like an enemy than a friend. He is more like darkness than light. One writer puts it, It almost drives him mad, that is Job, that he encounters him, God, in a form in which he is absolutely alien. I think Job is on the verge of insanity. He is on the verge of blasphemy. He is being pulled apart. Why doesn't God say something? What would you say to such a person? What does your belief, what does your theology say about someone like this? How are you going to keep believing in God in the face of impossible suffering? Are you only believing in your believing? Francis Schaeffer used to talk about modern man's faith in faith. Or will you trust in God in the face of immense suffering? How can you reconcile the presence of God with the absence of God? We're told that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Then why is it that he is absent at this moment, or he seems to be in Job's life? And why is it that he is not speaking to Job in the midst of this difficulty? I think it's worth noting that there are two avenues of escape from his situation, which Job does not consider, which he does not take. The first one was the one that his wife mentioned to him. That is to curse God and die. To sort of shake your hand and your fist at God and say, who do you think you are? You cosmic bully, you sadist, why are you doing this to me? And just spew curses against him and hope that he will kill you. The second avenue of escape is suicide. 
And it never occurs in the book of Job as a possible solution. It doesn't. In fact, in verses 20 through 22, Job wants to know why is it that people who want to die can't die? Well, modern man would say, Job, just get a gun and blow your brains out. But what's the problem? For Job, that is not a possibility. That is not possible. That is to take one's fate into one's own hands. Well, he hasn't apparently read the poem that we are the masters of our own destiny, the captains of our own fate. For Job, this is not possible. I think if we would be honest, there may have been times in our lives when we have considered suicide. There may have been times in our lives when we have shaken our fist at God and said, what are you doing? But these ultimately are not, this is not where we are to live. This is not where we are to live. These are shortcuts. They are means of escape. They don't allow us to grapple with problems as we should. There is a third solution, and it also does not occur to Job. I don't think that it would. It's much more a modern or even postmodern solution. And that is to redesign God in the image that you want him to, to be in. It's one thing that's really struck me in the last ten years. That people are no longer content to believe in God as he has said. In scripture, God has said, this is who I am. And people are like, no, no, God's not really like this is the way God is. And so people recreate God to, to fit their situation. Job does not consider this. It's the reason for the tension. This is who God says he is, and this is where Job's life is, and, and it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And so he cries from his heart in anger and anguish. The words that Job speaks in this chapter are among the harshest in this whole book in which he speaks against himself. <clears throat> they startle us, or at least they should. His friends are shocked by the words they hear coming from the mouth of their wise friend. Why would someone who refused to curse God, as his wife suggested, then turn around and curse the day that God gave him life? The contrast between the Job of the prologue and the Job of chapter 3, I think, could not be sharper. They're almost two different men. We almost don't recognize him in chapter 3. The question you may have asked yourself, or you might be asking yourself, is, was Job right in doing this? Did Job sin in cursing this day that he was born? Since life is the greatest gift that God can give us, I think a curse on it would be not only to deny the gift that God has given us, but also would speak against God himself. God, why did you make me? I didn't ask to be born. I didn't ask for you to create that day on which I was given life. Why did you do that? By the way, this is not the only time in the Old Testament that we have somebody speaking such words. Let me read to you from Jeremiah chapter 20, in which the prophet Jeremiah uh, if you get a chance to read it today, I would recommend you do it because basically he says to God, God, you lied to me. 
you tricked me into this prophet stuff. I didn't want to be a prophet. And you said, come on, come on, be a prophet. And, and look, I've been rejected by all the people. This is what Jeremiah says. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, a child is born to you, a son. So not only cursing the day, but cursing the man who told his dad, you've got a boy, you've got a son. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. That is like Sodom and Gomorrah. May he hear wailing in the morning a battle cry at noon. For he did not kill me in the womb with my mother as my grave. Her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? Why? Why? God does not give Job an answer. But he allows him to ask the question. And I would argue that in this chapter, Job did not sin. He has not sinned in cursing the day he was born or asking why he didn't die at birth. Because if he had sinned, then there would have no longer been any debate. His friends would have said, Case closed. You're a blasphemer. You've sinned against God. You've cursed God. Now we know why all these things have happened to you. It's just now coming out of your mouth, but it must have been in your heart before, and God saw your heart, and therefore it's come out. That's why you've suffered all these things. But his friends don't say that. Job approaches the very brink of cursing God, but he doesn't. He neither curses God nor takes his life into his own hands. He takes the only way out that he can see out of this misery, and that is to cry out. To cry out this lament and this curse. He has done nothing wrong, so why should he repent? He has done nothing wrong, so why should he offer a sacrifice to cover up the sin that he's committed? The thing he feared most has happened. God is silent. God is not answering him. And Job must endure this misery without any sense of God's comfort. Different ones of you may have experienced something like this. Perhaps not as acute But some of us have suffered things like this. Where what we see of God in Scripture and what we see God doing in our lives do not match. They don't make sense. And we really begin to wonder. It's much like Abraham. Abraham who left his family who wandered around for 25 years waiting for Sarah to get pregnant. And then God appears to him in physical form and God says, oh, by the way, I'm going to, I'm going to kill all those people over there. I'm going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's thinking, this is the God I left home for? This is the God I've been waiting on for 25 years? Job is much in the same situation. This is the God 
that I offer sacrifices to because I think maybe my children might have cursed him in their heart? This is the God I've been worshipping my whole life. The reality is that God is God. And we're not. And we may know of his character, but we do not always understand his ways. It is a real trial of faith. Will we continue to believe in God? Or will we be exposed for frauds that we actually weren't believing in God, we were believing in our belief in God? In the weeks to come, the Lord willing, we will see how Job's friends seek to correct him, and they're all wrong in what they say. And then how, at the end of the book, God finally does break his silence. He does speak. The God who was present all along but not saying anything will break his silence. Let's pray together. Our Father, you made us, you made the day of our birth, the night of our conceptions. You put us here sometimes we wonder why. Why it is that people are allowed to suffer unimaginable, indescribable pain and suffering. You tell us that you're good and you tell us that you love us. that you make it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The sun shines on both the good and the evil. But sometimes, frankly, we don't understand why you allow certain things to happen. As we face difficulties in our lives, may we be reminded of Job. That there are easy ways out, easy ways out, but these are not the ways we are to go. We are not allowed to kill ourselves and thus take your place in our lives. We are not allowed to curse you. We're not even allowed to rearrange your attributes to fit our own design. But by your grace, we are to struggle as Job did. Perhaps not as deeply, as profoundly. But to be brought to a point to realize that we don't understand everything about you. But you are still our God. May your spirit speak to our hearts. We think these things through in the coming days. We thank you for your goodness and your love. May your grace, your Holy Spirit, go with us as we leave this place. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.